Well, good morning. Tim is feeling much better and will be in the office tomorrow, but he asked me to go ahead and step in today. So would you join me in a word of prayer as we begin? Lord, thank you for answering prayers. Thank you for healing up Tim. But Lord, we ask now that you would continue, Lord, to use him, to give him your energy and, and imagination and love that he might lead us well into what you would have for us. Lord, as we open up your word this morning, speak to us. For we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And we are um, in a sermon series, this Advent titled Promises Kept. It's, it's all about how God keeps his promises, especially in the coming of Jesus. Our Advent booklet is filled with stories about God as how God has kept his promises in the lives of people here in our family at Glenkirk. Now, as we begin this morning, I need to tell you that I really like the Old Testament. I mean, the New Testament gets pretty specific about how to live in the moment. But the Old Testament challenges us to keep trusting God over a lifetime through all the ups and downs that 40, 60, 90, 150 plus plus years might throw at us. I mean, maybe having been at Glenkirk so long and seeing all the ups and downs at Glenkirk and how God has been faithful when we remain faithful to him has added to my love for the Old Testament. You see, remembering God's faithfulness to pass promises gives us confidence and helps us trust God, giving us a foundation and, and a direction upon which to build our lives on. Now, we began our series a couple weeks ago by looking at the Old Testament promise concerning Jesus as it was found in Genesis 3, where after the disobedience of Adam and Eve, God promises in his grace to send a champion who will crush the power of evil in the world. And that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He defeated the powers of the adversary and the power of sin and death. No longer does our past or our weaknesses have to define us. God's grace and his love now define us. By dying for, for our sin, for our selfishness, our, our desires to have it our way, to our desire to evaluate what is right and wrong for ourselves, God shows us that the real evil is within the hearts of men and women and not out there someplace. Now in God's call to Abraham, God promises that he will bless Abraham with a son through whom the whole world will be blessed. In particular, God promised to bring his blessing to the entire human race through the birth of Jesus. And we see throughout history, as people come to know Jesus around the world, lives and cultures are changed for the better. In so many ways, the blessings that we have are God's foretaste of what he desires to give to the entire world. And he blesses us that we might share the blessings, pointing others 
to Jesus. You see, following Jesus is not just about believing and one day dying and going to heaven. God is at work in our lives through all the ups and downs that we might show others the reality of God's presence, his goodness, his love now. And so the question, how are we doing? I mean, when was the last time that you shared with someone how God has made a difference in your life? Are you praying about who to invite to our Christmas Eve services and as Eric said, less than two weeks? Help. I don't even have my Christmas shopping done. Today, we're going to start by looking at a promise concerning the coming of Jesus that occurs at the very end of Genesis. In Genesis 49.10, God promised to bring the true king into the world who would make all things right. You see, Jesus makes things right not only by defeating Satan, but by creating for himself kingdom people who live out his kingdom life for his kingdom purposes. You see, God has a plan that he is working throughout history, a plan to defeat evil, a plan to bring blessings to the entire human race, a plan to set all things right, to reestablish creation to its intended purpose, to establish, as women's Bible study has heard over and over again this fall, God's kingdom here on earth. And not just his kingly rule, but also his way of life. Folks, if your life has any other purpose other than joining God in what he is doing, you will end up being frustrated and disappointed. But if you enter into the invitation to join God in what he is doing, you will discover joy and fulfillment, blessing and purpose. But having said all that, we need to know that God's king will make all things right, but he's going to do it in his way and in his timing, not by our earthly standards or methods. Now, if, if you remember, Abraham had a, a son, Isaac, who had a son, Jacob, who had 12 sons. One of them, Joseph, had a dream that his brothers would one day bow down to him. Say the least, that did not go over particularly well. And one day, seeing the opportunity, his brothers faked his death and sold him as a slave to Egypt. But Joseph held on to the dream, in a sense, he held on to the promise. And everything Joseph touched seemed, in a figurative sense, to turn to gold. The problem was that circumstantially, things kept getting worse. I mean, eventually he ends up in prison, interpreting dreams. One, in particular, for Pharaoh's cupbearer. And there's this great phrase in, in Genesis 40, 23. It says that the cupbearer forgot Joseph. Have you ever felt forgotten? 
but God was still working. Folks, this is an important point. Even when we do not understand what is happening, even when everything seems wrong and we feel forgotten, God is working to set all things right. But again, it's in his time, in his way, and by his power. Now, eventually, the cupbearer remembers Joseph when Pharaoh has a dream. And Joseph becomes the second in command in all of Egypt. And his brothers not only end up bowing down to him, but they end up coming to Egypt to live with Joseph. You see, God was in charge of the day-to-day circumstances. In fact, God reigns in the day-to-day circumstances of life. He's working behind the scenes, so to speak, to bring about the, not only the promise to Adam, but also the promise to Abraham. And God is still working in his way and timing to set everything that right that was lost in the fall. Our God reigns over dreams, over famines, even over earthly kings and nations. Now, at the end of Jacob's life, as he's about to die, he calls together all of his sons, and one by one, he blesses them. But one blessing in particular gets our attention. It's found in Genesis 49, 8. That's where we find these words, this promise, this prophecy. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Excuse me, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of all the nations will be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He'll wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Simply put, Jacob says to Joseph, whose name means praise, you are going to defeat your enemies. You are going to be king. You will rule over all nations. You will bring about a time of great prosperity. You will be the one that others look to with delight. But here's the thing. Judah himself never becomes king. You see, the prophecy is not really about him. It's about his descendants and one particular descendant, Jesus. But this isn't going to happen overnight. I mean, it's going to take 500 years for Jacob's 12 sons to grow into a mighty nation. During those years, they're going to become slaves resulting in God saving Moses from death and calling him to bring the slaves out of Egypt. Then they're going to end up wandering for 40 years in the wilderness as God gets the ways of Egypt out of them and teaches them what it means to trust in and live by his ways, by his power. 
After taking possession of the promised land, it's going to be another 350 plus years before the first king is crowned over the nation of Israel. But this happens because the people wanted to be like all the nations around them. They wanted to be like everybody else, not set apart and distinct as the people of God. And so taking matters into their own hands, they made Saul king. When Saul proved a dismal failure, God acted and had Samuel anoint David king. But it would take another 15 years before he actually began to reign. Most of those years, even though David had been anointed as king, he spends on the run, hiding from Saul, who was trying to kill him. You see, David, rather than taking matters into his own hands, waited patiently on God. He believed the promise, but he let God bring about the results in his timing and in his ways. I generally find myself reading a psalm a day, most of which were written by David, because in the psalms you see the reality of trials and yet the rejoicing of one who trusts God to make all things right. You see, David, unlike Saul, was a descendant of Judah. God's promise, 900 plus years earlier, was coming to fruition. Not by anything men did, but what God did in his way, in his timing, and in his power. Again, the point, God has a plan. God is working to establish his kingdom on earth, but he's doing it in his way and in his timing. The question is, will we wait on God? Will we be like those in the days of Saul, seeking to be like everybody else? Or will we, like David, wait, not taking matters into our own hands, but doing things God's ways, even loving our enemies and, and loving sacrificially as God works in his timing and his power? As I talked with some friends this week about this passage in Genesis, where Judah is told that his brothers are going to bow down to him, one of them said, well, I bet that did not go over well with Judah's brothers. How often do we question God and what he is doing? Because we either do not like his timing or we don't like his ways. How often, because we view things from our, our selfish perspective, do we miss the greatness of what God is doing? You see, it wasn't about Judah at all. It, it was not about how Saul was what everybody thought a king should look like. It was about God and what God was doing to a young boy, David, with a slingshot who was not even built to wear the armor of, God, of Saul. David, a man after God's own heart, a man God used despite his shortcomings because he kept seeking God and his power, and his ways. God's king will make all things right, but in his way. Will we be patient? Will we be willing to put aside the ways of earthly power 
and live in humble dependence and love. Now, unfortunately, as you continue to read through the Old Testament, David's sons stopped waiting on God. They started to worship other gods, but God did not forget his promise. He did, though, give in to their desires, resulting in one nation after another, ruling the people of Israel until the coming of Jesus about a thousand years later. And that's where we pick up the Christmas story in Luke 2, where we read these words. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken to the entire Roman world, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, and lying in a manger. Now, and this is a fun passage. You see, the person who seems to be in total control is Caesar Augustus. Augustus turned the great Roman Republic into an empire with himself as the head. He proclaimed that he had brought justice and peace to the whole world, styling himself as the son of God. Augustus, people said, was the savior of the world. He was its king, its lord, or so it seemed. But what Luke is pointing out is that Augustus does not have all the power at all. God is actually the one who is working behind the scenes through him and through all earthly powers and circumstances to bring about his purposes if we would only have eyes to see. You see, God was using this non-believer halfway around the world to fulfill the prophecy that a true king from the line of Judah, a descendant of David, would be born in the city of David. Now, just in passing, I mean, it's kind of fun to note Revelations 5, verses 1 to 5, where the apostle John says this, and then I saw at the right hand of God right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth under, or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, 
The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. Did you catch those last words? The lion, the tribe of the tribe of Judah, he has triumphed. He is able. And in so doing, he will set all things right. He will finally usher in the the kingdom that will last forever, a kingdom without mourning or crying or pain, a kingdom of prosperity and healing, as we read in the final chapters of Revelation. Now, as we read that Revelation passage and the Luke passage, there's a theme, a theme that goes with this third week in Advent. It's the theme of joy. Rejoice. Our God reigns. In Luke, it's the angels declaring the good news to the shepherds. And in Revelation, it's one of the elders telling John not to weep. Why? Because it's Jesus, not Caesar, not the circumstances of life, who's king, who rules, who's setting all things right, who's working all things towards their victorious, towards his victorious, eternal reign. Now, there's something else to note in the Luke account. The angels bring the message of joy to shepherds who at that time were thought to be completely unclean. Shepherds out in the cold who when the angels appear respond with fear. Fear is the response of almost every individual when an angel appears. Why? Because when we come face to face with an angel, we're confronted with the reality that there's something out there beyond our control. There's something more powerful than ourselves. And where we think we have it together, we're confronted with the reality that we really don't. We're confronted with the reality that there's more going on than meets the naked eye. The reality that we are at the mercy of something greater than all of us. You see, most of our lives, we spend trying to pretend that there's nothing to be afraid of. Most of our lives, we try and orchestrate circumstances that give us a sense of control and stability and peace, but it's really an illusion. And when we are confronted with something greater than us, when we are out of control, our response, like the shepherds, is often some manifestation of fear. But the angel's response is don't be afraid. Yes, Caesar might seem to be in control, but be joyful. A baby is born. God is at work. But then there's this twist, and this will be assigned. You will find the baby wrapped and lying in a feeding trough. Really? A baby in a feeding trough is in control? And, and we unclean, outcast shepherds are the ones to tell the world, really? Yes. Don't look at appearances. Don't look at who you are not. Look to the one who has the real power. His power is so great that even as a baby in a feeding trough, he is in complete control. Now, two things in passing. One is that up until this point, very few people really understand what is going on. 
But now these strangers will seek Mary and Joseph out and confirm that this baby really is who the angels have said he is. How often do we need confirmation that God really is reigning? That he is working even when we don't always get it. That's why we need to come to worship. That's why we need each other and and why small groups are so important. That's why it's important to be in the word day in and day out. Now, as the manger was assigned to the shepherds, Christmas is assigned to us. I mean, yes, nothing seems much different than a month ago. But God is at work. Yes, his ways seem to be slow. But our God reigns. And so rather than being fearful, we can and we're called to rejoice, even in the midst of darkness, as we focus on the one who reigns. But something else, and this is where the New Testament comes in. The Old Testament gives us this view from, in a sense, 5,000 feet, so to speak. But the New Testament drives it home in very practical day-to-day ways. For example, when I think of that baby in a feeding trough, I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 and following, where Paul writes, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God chose the weak of the world to shame the strong, and God chose the lowly things and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become the wisdom of God, that is our righteousness and holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, if anyone is to boast, let him boast in the Lord. I mean, I love that verse. It's not the powerful who have it all together, who have control. It's the weak and it's the foolish. It's those who have been infused with the power of God. God doesn't work in big things, but in the seemingly small and insignificant day-to-day things. And when I think about how Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem at the command of Caesar, I'm reminded of Romans 8.28 where we read and we know that all, in all things God works for good for those who love him and who have been called according to his purposes. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God works all things for good so that we would all be conformed to the image of his son so that the world would be put right as we, rather than following the ways of the world, follow the ways of his son, developing a heart like Jesus. You see, God is less interested in the circumstances of life and more interested in making our hearts like Jesus. Putting all things right is about Jesus. As was promised in Genesis 49, setting up a prosperous kingdom. But that kingdom is not a kingdom where I'm at the center and I live on some eternal vacation. It's not about the 40 or 60 or 90 years that I live now. It's about a kingdom as God intended when he first created the world, a kingdom described at the end of Revelation. That kingdom has broken into the world. 
but we are called to partner with King Jesus in bringing it about. Our lives are to be about his ways and his plans. We are to live now as citizens in his kingdom, showing the world what kingdom people look like. We are to live as Jesus lived, in obedience to the Father, seeking to glorify the Father, loving as he loved, turning the other cheek, forgiving as we've been forgiven, not grasping on and holding on to things, but seeing everything we have, all of the circumstances we find ourselves in as an opportunity to serve others and point others to Jesus, living not in fear, but in rejoicing. For our King has come, and he is coming again. He has a plan, and he's called us into living as kingdom people, inviting others into his kingdom until the time when all things are finally put right in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for the ways that we seek to control things ourselves. Come, Lord Jesus, enter into our hearts and our lives. May we point others to you this Christmas as we trust in you and in your ways and in your timing. In Jesus' name, amen.